Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast, the only podcast that brings you all the incredible stories of the entrepreneurs and leaders that are shaping our great city. And this week, we got the chance to talk with Lindsay Karras Stencil, and she is the chief legal counsel for NCT Ventures, a venture capital firm here in town. And if you guys haven't heard our previous interviews with Rich Langdale and Bill Bommel from their team. You should go back, check those out, learn more about their team. But Lindsay has a great story and she's doing a whole heck of a lot. And I think we can all learn from her experiences and some of the things she has going on. So I definitely hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.com. Dot O-R-G. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Congress, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Uh, we're excited today to be talking with Lindsay Karras Stencil. And Lindsay is a partner as well as the chief legal counsel and fund manager for NCT Ventures, a Midwest-focused venture firm based here in Columbus. And, you know, we've previously had Rich Langdale, managing partner, on as a guest. If you guys caught that episode, if you didn't, go check it out. But we're really excited to have Lindsay on today to talk about her experience and the legal side of venture capital. And welcome to Conquering Columbus, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you on today. And, and you know, excited just to, I, really, I haven't dove much into the legal side of venture capital, so it'll be interesting to hear kind of what your day-to-day looks like. But, 
typically kind of where we like to start is take a step back and talk about some of the stuff that led up to joining NCD Ventures, some of the things you were doing before then, kind of any key areas or stops along the way of your life that kind of led you to this point. Sure. So naturally, in order to be the chief legal counsel of any place, you need to end up going to law school. And law school is a very challenging thing for me. Um, I did fine in law school. I I enjoyed the academic aspect of it, but it's just a real grind. Um, But I did that at the Ohio State University. And after two years of law school, I actually was like, oh, shoot, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> so I stopped and well, I continued with law school, I guess I should say. But I also got my MBA at the same time. And uh, it was through that that I actually received an email from one of my classmates who said, oh, well, the venture firm that I'm working with, they're looking to raise, some, or excuse me, they're looking to hire some new associates. And, you know, if you're interested, answer these questions, apply here. And so I've always sort of been one of those people, like, the answer is always no unless you ask. So if I don't throw my hat into the ring, the answer is already no. So what's the worst that's going to happen? They tell me no after I apply. Okay, whatever. So I thought venture was really exciting. I really liked a few things at that time. I really liked venture. I liked PE, private equity, and investment banking. And it was sort of trying to figure out which of those things I wanted to do. Um, So I applied for the job at NCT, and I wanted to be like an MBA analyst, like a quant jock, kind of crunching numbers and researching and all these things, and they didn't give me that job, and I was very, very sad, actually, Um, so I was really disappointed because I actually was really excited about it, and then they called me back the next day, and they said, hey, we have a different opportunity for you. Would you come down and talk to us about it? And I said, sure. So they said, hey, (laughs) you have a different skill set than we normally see come through the door. Would you be interested in helping to basically create and then manage our legal department? And so uh, that was a job for clarity that uh, I probably should have never been given at that point in time in my career. But um, to the credit of my partners, I think that they maybe saw something special in me. So at that point in time, so this is a long time ago, it was like 12 plus years ago, uh, venture wasn't really a thing in Columbus, so there wasn't really anyone to teach me how to do it, so I had to teach myself how to do it. So I had to teach myself how to structure deals, I had to teach myself how to you know, run and manage funds, I had to teach myself how to do deals not just with folks in Ohio, because we kind of had our own way of doing things, but then also uh, how does the rest of the country do deals and what are the differences there. So uh, it was, a learning curve that was effectively straight to the moon for probably the first two years of my career. And then I sort of kind of got my sea legs under me, if you will. And then it was just, let's go gangbusters from there, and, and the rest is history. And, and now, I, it's crazy to say, but I teach venture capital law at The Ohio State University. So I guess you could say I figured it out. So I want to dive more into the details about how you were able to teach yourself those different things along the way. But before we get into that, maybe just a little bit more on the background. Did you do your undergrad at Ohio State as well? No. So I am born and raised in Buffalo, um, and I wasn't really ready to leave the nest, if you will. So I didn't live with my parents, but I lived on campus at Canisius College in Buffalo. Uh, It's a D1 school. I played lacrosse there, and they paid for me to play lacrosse. So not only did I do a full four years of undergrad, I took a victory lap, too, because if they're paying for it, you might as well take it and have a good time when you're 22 years old and you don't have a ton of responsibility yet. So, yeah, and it was through there. I was actually a biochemistry major. Turns out I, like, really hated lab. So after three years of doing that, I said, I don't really want to be a doctor. I was actually going to go to medical school. 
And then, um, so I just transitioned out of that, and I said, what's the next thing I should do? And I said, I guess I'll be a lawyer. Like, it's hard. Hmm. Did, oh, you, <laughs> did, you go, did you go straight into law school after undergrad? Yeah, so I did my first year of law school at Seton Hall University in New Jersey, and I hated it. And I don't know if it's because I didn't like the law school or if I didn't like New Jersey. We can, uh, it's not worth me, like, giving any more brain power to. So I, I had a transfer after that, and I wanted something more Midwestern, and it was between Notre Dame and OSU, and uh, school was starting in two days. So OSU had gotten back to me, and Notre Dame hadn't, so I put all my stuff in my car, and I moved to Ohio, and I didn't know a soul. And um, I slept on the floor for like two weeks because I didn't have a bed. <laughs> but it was character building. And um, I figured out, you know, the entire city by running it every morning. So I'd go for a run and I'd just learn the city. Turns out I probably shouldn't have done that in some of the places I was running at that time. But it's much, it's much safer now and better. So um, kudos to the city of Columbus. But uh, yeah, I just kind of figured it all out. I'm sort of one of those people you can drop me in the middle of the ocean and I'm still going to figure out how to swim even if you tie cement blocks to my feet. So... <laughs> Sounds like it. And, you know, I, what I'm curious about is kind of what drew you to, because I'm similar. I was a biology major in mm. college. I was, thought I was going to be a dentist mm. and then didn't like lab, but also shout out to dentist didn't like that either. So I went another direction, but I'm curious about what drew you to towards the, so like from law school to the MBA kind of combo, right? Like when did you decide, well, now I want to do business and kind of what was that trigger? So I just found that I had really strong business instincts. As as you walk through your first year of law school, you're in a bunch of classes that you just have to take because they're on the bar exam and they suck and whatever, and you do them. But I found myself thinking about, okay, well, the things I like or I'm interested in have a tendency to do more with transactional type of work as opposed to litigation side of work. So I fundamentally believe that there are two types of attorneys. There are litigators and there are transactional folks. Transactional attorneys, um, everybody's effectively working towards the same goal. Everybody wants, you know, one company wants to buy the business and the other person wants you to buy the business, right? So that's effectively the same goal. It's just how do you get there? Whereas in litigation, you have very binary outcomes. It is one person believes one thing, one person believes another thing, and then they beat the hell out of each other to try to achieve said goal. That's not really how I function. I think you can be much more collaborative and collegial. And so I just gravitated more towards transactional work. And then as I progressed through, I just found myself gravitating more so towards venture and PE and investment banking. And admittedly, part of that is because it's a real grind. Um, and I go back and forth on this because I don't believe that you should grind until your eyes bleed, but in a weird part of me, like, loves to do that. So I love to work, like, super hard. And I will tell you, no one can outwork me. So <laughs> I, I love working. Everybody has their drug, and, and work is mine. And, and I think that's why just venture and transactional work of that nature just sort of fit my personality because it allowed me to sort of, like, grind and go and think and work harder and push harder. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up there, I guess. <laughs> So think back to those early days when you first started. Uh, what was your, your initial take on venture, and, and how did you feel about the ecosystem, especially in Columbus as it was just starting to uh, grow and, and evolve? So if I look back in time, I look at when I started in venture, we were a primordial ecosystem. So I liken us to the evolution of man. Okay, And at that time, 
we were maybe fresh out of the ocean, still having tail, floundering around on land, figuring out way. Um, now, I think for the most part, we're upright walking man. Occasionally, we're bent over a little bit, and I think we do have a ways to go before we're upright running man in tiny little shorts. But at the time, how did I think about the ecosystem? I don't think I thought about it in that way because it wasn't really an ecosystem. So when I started, you know, Rev1 wasn't Rev1. It was Tech Columbus, and it was still a bunch of parties still trying to figure out the way and the path. There was, you know, Jumpstart up in Cleveland. There was Cincy Tech down in Cincinnati. And everybody was trying to, like, figure out how does this all work together? How does this fit? And no one really – everyone knew, like, we have to sort of, like, think about working together. And together, you know, we're all going to be better and rising tides lift all ships. But at the same time, there was still a sense of – Everybody's still trying to figure out, like, well, where do I fit in the ecosystem? What part of this is mine? And and so it was an odd time. And then I think as we started to progress through, I would tell you it wasn't until probably 2013, 2014, where I started to really feel like it actually feeling like an ecosystem where there were different layers, be it pre-seed and then seed and seed plus and A and B and whatever for funding and um mentorship and and resources and tools like all of those things just weren't even there you know when I started in venture there were like three venture firms and one of them was saying they didn't want to do venture anymore so it wasn't even like I can't even express like I grew up in venture and venture grew up with me it was a very odd thing and um, it was very cool because I don't think you get a lot of opportunities in life like that to sort of rise up when the thing that you're working on is rising up too so it's neat So how were you able to teach yourself the different things you needed to learn along the way, especially as there was no ecosystem when you first started here in Columbus? Yeah. Um, I had two really great legal mentors out of um, Cincinnati, uh, Roger Latzenheiser and Jason Hodges. And they weren't necessarily teaching me venture because even for them, venture was sort of a new thing, but they were teaching me corporate law and like they they were kind of like, taking me under their wing and they're like hey kid why are you doing these crazy things with your documents like think about things this way so I had them to sort of serve as my mentors and I'm eternally grateful for them because they really didn't need to do that right they didn't get any benefit I can't make it more clear like they had no financial benefit nothing for doing that they were just great and just helpful the other part of it was I think I was just so immersed in it because NCT was doing so many deals and was really one of the only venture firms here that I just sort of had to figure it out and I'm a little bit more empathic than most people are so I can pick up and I can read things differently than some people can like in a negotiation or a discussion so if we were presenting something that was maybe out of market or someone was sensing to be odd or strange um, I could probably pick that up sooner than maybe some other people could because I could read the other party going what in the heck are you saying or doing and why are you guys doing this and then on top of it, I just read and researched and like looked at forums and I, you know, like Googled. I mean, there were there were terms like people would use and I wouldn't know what the hell they were saying. So I would like write it down in my notebook and I would go home at the end of the night and I would like look up all these terms <laughs> to just teach myself everything. And I think that's the most fabulous way to teach yourself. When I teach my um, interns and my associates and whatever, I give them a huge long leash. And I'm like, go figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, come back to me. But I want you to try your hardest to figure it out because you just learn it better that way. So yeah, so then that progressed even further because I started doing transactional work 
more coast to coast. I do a lot of work up in, in Buffalo, my hometown, and you start to see like how things are shaped there versus Midwest versus West Coast. And so now I just have this big, beautiful picture of what's happening, but I'm in the heart of it every day. So it's kind of easy to pick it up now. And what is that, what is that big picture that you're seeing across, you know, from coast to coast? Yeah. Um, opinions by Lindsay, full disclosure. I think venture's a little bit broken right now. Um, I think so many people get caught up, and I'm going to make up this word, in Amazonifying a business where Amazon sort of went at it and they're like, look, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to lose a crap ton of money. And then some things really stacked in their favor economically and you know Amazon Web Services happened and a couple other things and then they were able to find profitability and and they're you know successful now and crushing it and I think a lot of companies have tried to repeat that process and they're not doing it in the same way because their business metrics underlying the actual like margins and things of that nature don't actually work but people still get so excited about the potential of a business so that they're still pushing up valuations almost to an insanely high level, particularly on the coasts. And it's not necessarily panning out the way that I think a lot of folks thought that it would. Um, you know, see generally the WeWorks and the Ubers and, you know, all of those that we're seeing unfold right now. So I think then when you shift more to the Midwest, where we tend to look a little bit more at underlying business metrics and say, and we're more conservative as a group. And so we want to know like, hey, is this business going to make some money possibly someday? So, you know, we're seeing it shaped a slightly different way in the Midwest. I, th- I would say that the, the especially West Coast coastal terms have tremendous impact on what the rest of the country does. And that makes sense. I mean, most of the transactional work happens there, but it does sort of shape how we then do things and it's funny because then people hear like well market on the west coast is you know and they'll say like crazy things to you like that and you're like well that's cool then go over there and try to get some money but you're you here now so this is what you're getting hey there conquerors we're gonna take a quick break in the show here to tell you about one of our sponsors mix wonders creating a podcast is a ton of work and a lot of heart and soul goes into your work and that's why you want your audience to have the best listening experience possible And that's why we work with Mixed Wonders. Mixed Wonders is an agency that helps podcasters like us get the most out of their audio. And whether you're spending four hours mixing your podcast each week, or you just can't seem to get the level of quality you want out of your audio, Mixed Wonders makes it super simple to get pop star level audio at a low price. For a limited time, they are offering to mix your first episode for free. So just go to MixWonders.com. That's M-I-X. W-O-N-D-E-R-S dot com to sign up for a free mix or consultation. Save time, sound professional, mix wonders. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? I think that... So, I guess the question I would have would be that do you think that the difference in strategy and the difference in the, I guess different, we'll call them ecosystems, but really you know, the difference between the, the way the Midwest does business mm-hmm. and the way that folks on the West Coast are doing their, their venture deals has a negative impact on the Midwest in terms of draw? Or do you think that that because we're a little more conservative, we're long-term going to have a better impact? Like, what, do, what are your thoughts about that? Does that question even make sense? Yeah, kind of. Um, so I would <laughs> say long-term, I think, I think we're doing a lot of the right things. I think that we're probably picking some really strong business candidates. And um, a lot of the metrics just make a lot more sense than a lot of what we might see 
in the west on the west coast in particular you know when i think about what was the other part of the first part of the question i just want to make sure i'm answering so is it, a, is <laughs> really? it a, i guess like really right is it a negative on the draw to the columbus and getting more I, businesses here? i don't think so i mean we still have this wonderful you know midwest mentality midwest People just really look to the Midwest and our work ethic and how you know hard we dig in on something. But it's just more cost effective to also run a business here. So you can afford two developers here where you can afford one on the West Coast. And so you just think about the magnitude at which we can probably produce work versus what could happen on the West Coast. Um, so I think in that respect, it's, it's positive. I think... You know, I don't think it's negative necessarily. I just think sometimes we do still what I call Midwest all over deals, which is like still apply this very hyper conservative 2008-ish mentality of like, the sky is falling and we need to protect against all the downside risk that could ever possibly happen ever. And I think sometimes it prevents us from saying, instead of us saying, well, what if everything goes wrong? Like we're not saying, well, what if it goes right? And I think we need to think about that more. And I think that's the place where we need to have a little bit of a fundamental shift so that it's maybe uh, even more attractive for other people. Where do you think that mentality is being driven? Do you think it's more founder-driven, VC-driven in the Midwest? Or do you think it's kind of meeting in the middle somewhere? Um, it's probably more investor-driven. So entrepreneurs, they're like, they, are, they always think, oh my gosh, I have a bajillion-dollar business. I'm going to be the next you know, Mark Zuckerberg or whoever the heck they want to aspire to be. And I think a lot of investors are like, whoa, 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 like, I hear you, but I think you're, like, worth a million dollars and this and that. And they just have, I mean, think about it. They don't want to, they probably worked really hard for their money. They would prefer not to lose it on someone's pipe dream. So naturally they're going to have a tendency to skew towards not believing in some of those things and wanting to protect their assets and risk. And I get that, but there's... There's a way to protect what you're, there's a way to protect downside, but also keep everybody inspired and engaged to promote upside. So do you think there, there's uh, more apprehension towards burning cash, going after maybe uh, billion dollar pipe dreams here in the Midwest than there is on the West Coast? Is that kind of the gist of it? For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's that. And I think we just have a tendency to be more skeptical and not necessarily believe the dream. Because I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think there's plenty of businesses that could be unicorns. It's just, you know, I think we're just naturally a little bit more apprehensive to believe that to be so. And if you think about it, it hasn't happened that often here. We've had two so far. So if you've only had two and hundreds and if not thousands of businesses formed, it's hard to believe that every single one of them is going to be a billion-dollar opportunity. So, Lindsay, I think that's a good place to kind of pivot. Let's talk a little bit about how things have changed over time for you. You mentioned now you lead the whole legal counsel team for NCT. Yeah. And how has your role changed over time? What's your day-to-day -day look like now? Um, chaos. So, um, yeah, I have a really full plate, and I do that really intentionally. So I wear a lot of hats every day, not just the NCT-related hat. I'm the COO and fund manager for a group, a nonprofit out of upstate New York. I run my own law firm, my accidental law firm that I started like 10 years ago. You know, I teach, I have a CrossFit gym. So, like, there's a lot of plates spinning for me every day. So I wake up, go to the gym, get my mind right. <laughs> and then I come home and my day just sort of starts. So sometimes I go to the office, sometimes I work from home. But my first 
four hours are generally, um, I call it triaging the hottest issues of the day. So those are either issues that came in between, you know, 9 p.m. and when I start looking at my email at 8, or there are things that are flying into my email between 8 and 12. And so a lot of times that's meetings, that's, um, you know, picking up the phone, that's walking down to someone's office and saying like, okay, I hear you that this is the issue. Tell me why it's the issue and tell me what we need to do to solve it. What's your goal? What's your outcome that you would desire? And so I understand that. And then from there it's sort of taking and and sometimes I'm the person doing the work and sometimes I'm the person sourcing the work to wherever it's got to go to solve whatever problems that we need to solve for the day and uh like when I say problems it's not really problems I mean they're great things to have like hey so and so just said they want to buy this business for x what does that look like who gets what money when and uh the good and the bad thing about being in the ground floor of any venture firm is it's it's being you know it's coming up the ranks like I'm almost effectively the institutional knowledge of the organization so like I know everything like almost (laughs) too much like I can't fit it all in my melon anymore but I know how to solve every single issue and every single problem and if I don't know how to immediately solve it instantly I know where to go find the answer and so that's where a lot of my stuff comes from and so sometimes it's super exciting you know someone wants to buy into a business someone wants to invest someone wants to you know they want to enter into this contract to buy, you know, $10 million worth of whatever. Those are great problems to have, but they're still problems because you got to solve them and make sure that the companies or the funds are protected. So you mentioned accidentally start your own law firm. How, <laughs> did, how does one accidentally start their own law firm? Yeah. So in 2010, um, we have a super entrepreneurial culture at NCT. Um, and I credit that to Rich and Bill. Um, they were entrepreneurs before they were ever venture capitalists. And... Uh, we had a bunch of people in our offices that would be starting their own little businesses and this and that. And, and some of them were, you know, potentially high growth startups. Some of them were just, you know, doing business with their friends, whatever. But all of those people still needed legal paperwork, but they didn't want to call, you know, the big firms in town and pay astronomical amounts of money because a lot of times they just couldn't afford it. So they came to me and they said, hey, would you be willing to help us? And I was like, sure, but I feel like I should charge you something because I'm offering you a thing of clear value and, you know, (laughs) I don't want to be taken advantage of. So it should be somewhat mutual. So two clients turned into four, four turned into 16, and you see where this choo-choo train is is going. And before you knew it, I had like 200 clients. I don't talk to all of them every single day, but I mean, at any given time, I've got, you know, 30 that needs something. Um, so obviously I'm one human, humans don't scale, turns out. So um, I had to hire a bunch of contractors underneath me to sort of like manage some of that workflow. And yeah, so now I represent, Um, a ton of venture funds, a ton of startups, some small businesses that are not necessarily VC type businesses, but, you know, they need legal work nonetheless, right? So, um, and they need to be protected and set up in the right way so that, you know, they're not screwing themselves or others. And so, yeah, I turned this like random hobby of trying to be helpful into like a real legit business. (laughs) It seems... I was going to ask, are you still doing contractors or you have full-time employees now? Um, so I still keep contractors because the work sort of ebbs and flows. And a lot of the folks that I have as contractors, they, um, you know, they'll tell me like, look, I don't want to do a lot of work between these two months because I'm going on vacation or I'm getting married, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And that's cool with me. Like I just know, okay, put work across other, uh, you know, other contractors. And on top of it, most of them have their own full-time jobs that they very much like 
but they want to like stay in the startup world or the venture game and they just enjoy it and they've usually worked for me at some point in my career but they're like doing their next cool thing now but they just kind of want to keep working and so yeah it's been like a really interesting thing and I think it's a really smart setup not to like pat myself on the back but I'm not carrying the load of an employee I don't have benefits I don't have you know the issues that come with that and and taxes and all of that because they're just not working set hours or anything like that so it's 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 worked for me and it's worked for them and I'm gonna keep on keeping on it seems like to me you know with you being so busy and all the things all these plates you're spinning that one thing you must be really good at and correct me if I'm wrong would be finding talented people to delegate things to that can get the job done well is that an accurate statement Yes, that's accurate. I try to always stay in the good graces of people who I believe to be really talented at the things that they're really talented at. So I try to maintain really strong relationships with a lot of people so that, you know, they trust me, I trust them. But I also know, like, look, I can put this in your hands and you're going to knock the cover off the ball and it's going to be amazing. And we can push that work product back out and be really proud of that. I mean, at the end of the day, you get judged on your paperwork as an attorney. So you've got to turn stuff out that isn't stupid. (laughs) So it has to be really good. Um, So yeah, I would say that I'm good at that. But I would also admit, full-fledged, anyone who's listening to this and knows me, I am a little bit of a control freak. So I like sometimes it's hard for me when something is right in front of my face and super time sensitive to delegate it out because it's almost harder sometimes to push that out to someone because you have to go through it and you have to explain it you have to explain why you have to do whatever and sometimes it's just easier to sit down and bang on your computer till two o'clock in the morning and get it done definitely and so I guess kind of stem from there you know with the legal company that's going to continue going on but what is what else have you got going on? You're teaching, you're a professor, yeah, yeah. you've got a couple other key things that you're working on. So what are the other projects that you've got going on? Yeah, so um, I am teaching. I teach Budding Legal Eagles, and that's wonderful and fulfilling and exciting. So I have my firm. I have the stuff up in New York. And then, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, a couple different things. One is I'm trying to figure out how to just get more dollars into the hands of women, Um, So I'm a co-founder of an organization called the W Fund, and that's an organization that's looking at the entirety of the cap stack and trying to say, like, how do we get more of these dollars, whatever format, into the hands of women? So women are grossly underfunded, and so how do we try to solve that problem? Uh, The other thing I'm working on is, um, as I mentioned, I kind of think venture's a little bit broken. It's broken in the business aspect, but I also think it's broken a little bit in the humanistic side of things you know in venture we have this mentality like let's everyone work until their eyes bleed and that's in the venture firms and that's in the portfolio companies and when you think about that that's great except like when you're working at three o'clock in the morning to try to get something done are you really providing your best work the answer is probably no and if you're doing that you know consistently and you're not taking care of yourself spiritually mentally physically are you really putting out your best work product no you know, and in turn, you're not producing the best outcomes for the business, which in turn means you're probably not producing the best outcome for your investors. So I'm trying to look at things and say, okay, well, how do I create a vehicle where I'm still investing in high growth businesses, but part of those dollars are being allocated to really focus on 
on the human side of things because I think at the end of the day if you don't have great teams and great humans who are taking care of themselves doing the best that they can do um, I don't know that it makes all the sense in the world so I can't really talk too much more about it because sometimes SEC gets mad when you start to talk about those things so <laughs> more to come so you talk about you know the, the importance of balance and the the mental the spiritual the physical health um, with someone that has so much going on and obviously has a, a passion for working really hard, what does that balance look like for you? I will tell you, it's a struggle every day. Okay, so I work out every morning. Um, I used to actually work out twice a day, but my life got in the way. Like, my career got in the way. So uh, most days I only work out once a day. And I work out pretty hard. You know, I train for half marathons. I own a CrossFit gym, so I do CrossFit. You can't own a CrossFit gym and not do CrossFit. That's sort of hypocritical um but I love CrossFit and I think it's an interesting way to prove to yourself every day that you can do more than you ever thought you could do so that's always positive it's about boundary setting so sometimes it's hard when you have to tell people like no I can't meet with you right now because you just need time to decompress you just need time to be yourself I do yoga um I'm not good at it now my fellow yogis will be like you can't be good or bad at yoga I'm like no you can watch me do yoga okay so <laughs> Um, I am super muscular if you don't know me so like watching those muscles try to um, be stretchy and bendy is a challenging thing but it's really good for me it's an hour a day where I don't have my phone and no one can get to me it's just me myself and the mat trying to do my my thing you know on Saturdays I don't do work I don't care what you have going on I don't like it's not that I don't care but like I care about myself enough to say like, this is just what I need to do for me. So it's it's email-free Saturdays. It's, you know, I don't take work calls, things of that nature. And then I go on vacation. Like, every quarter I go on a longer vacation, like maybe five days. So that spills over a weekend. And once a month I try to go somewhere just for a weekend to just get away from life. So I try to find as much balance in a crazy world, just like anybody else does. I'm not perfect at it. I try really hard, and I think that's the best that I can do. Absolutely. So, Lindsay, what do you see being kind of your biggest obstacles moving forward? What are the key initiatives you're working on with in terms of NCT Ventures? So, yeah, with NCT, right now we are acutely focused on exiting businesses with strong returns for our investors. So, you know, markets are tough. Sure, there's a lot of capital out there. There's a lot of folks like thinking about acquiring and all of that. But, you know, it's it's a struggle every day. If this was easy work, everybody would do it. You know, it's a lot of relationship building, building connections, building contacts, getting people comfortable with what the businesses that we have are doing, why they should be selling for the multiples that they should, um, and then continuing to foster and build those relationships. And those are not like pick up phone and you're like, hey, Google don't you want to buy this cool thing? Like, it's sometimes months, if not years of cultivation. So that's a big thing. You know, I, I know right now there's, you know, tons of talk about when is the recession coming? Um, not to say that VC isn't as impacted as the standard capital markets by downturns in the economy, but it is impacted to some degree because people want to sit on cash longer. They don't want to do the same deals the same way. So, you know, my, my, my fear is always that that's going to be something that we have to deal with and a bridge we have to cross. But, you know, right now we have a lot of companies doing really amazing things, showing really strong growth. And so part of that is just keeping that going too because what you don't want to do is flatline because then it doesn't really look like a high growth business. It just looks like a 
strong lifestyle business, and that's not what we're in the game of. So one dynamic that, that came up out of the point you just made, I'm curious to hear more about is like a business either does or doesn't want to sell. And then you as uh, one of the VC investors, whatever series you walk in at, you know, either you do or don't want to sell. So when those two can th- things conflict and you probably don't have the majority ownership, I would assume, in these uh, different companies, and right now you're focusing on exits and returns for your investors, what does that look like? Um, so one of the things that we tend to talk about with our companies, we try to understand from the onset, like, what's your number, right? So we're trying to make sure that, you know, their number, that we don't want to hear them say, I'm never selling this business. I want to hold forever, yada, yada. Like, that's not a <laughs> good plan. So that would, you know, we try to alleviate some of that. But typically, you know, sometimes you get an offer and maybe the investor thinks the company's not going somewhere. So they're sure, they're like, sure, let's take it. But the entrepreneur just believes more in the company and wants to keep pushing. I mean, part of that is dependent on what the control mechanisms that are written into the underlying documentation are. So sometimes, even if you don't have a majority interest, you can almost, not to say force a sale, but you can apply strong pressure. Once in a while, you could force, depending on situation. So so that's, I guess, one perspective. And once in a while, you know, entrepreneurs, they just get tired and they, they're like, look, I want to sell this business and it's for a, you know, a fraction of what we think it should sell for. And so naturally, we're going to fight that. We're going to try to do the best that we can to push up value and change the mind of entrepreneur. But sometimes the market is what the market is. And like, yeah, you enter into an investment, you know, eight years prior and you think the thing is going to sell for, you know, $10 billion markets change you know interests change regulations change and sometimes it's just not going to work out that way so then you have to kind of think that through and say like is this the best deal that I can get for my investors and like then you have to also balance too hey if this entrepreneur doesn't really want to do this anymore they want to sell or whatever and you know as venture capitalists we're not in the business of like running someone's company like we have tons of investments we don't have the desire or bandwidth to do that so sometimes you just got to say okay like is it better for me to allocate my time on these other businesses which are going gangbusters and like let's all lock arms together and march forward with those and if this guy wants or gal wants to sell like whatever usually the vcs are the people who get the money off the table first so if that's what the entrepreneur wants to do that's what they want to do it doesn't always benefit them though so what about goals for the future moving forward? What are your goals? What are you working on? What are the things you see? I mean, do you write up a three, five-year plan? Yeah. Um, so I also have a 10-year plan. My number is 47. And so at the age of 47, I only want to work on the things that I want to work on. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, if I just want to sit on the beach in Key West for six months, I'm going to do that because I can. Um, and so that's part of my plan. And so in order to get there, I've got 10 years to close that gap a little bit. So yeah, I back it out from there, really. And I say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to have in terms of resources, etc., etc.? Ultimately, I want to be doing things, not necessarily because it's like income driven, but it's more intangible driven. Like how do I improve people's lives? How do I make their lives better? but I have to crush some personal goals of mine in order to do that. And they're mostly monetary. (laughs) I'm a capitalist at heart, right? Right, aren't we all? all? So I think, you know, Lindsay, that's probably a good place to pivot and talk about our last question of the show. And it's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Oh, yeah. And not 
digging into too much about why Josh and I chose that for a phrase about a podcast uh, focused on entrepreneurs. What do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, I'm actually naturally very introverted. So to put myself in public settings under a lot of pressure and like high demand and things of that nature is oftentimes very overwhelming to me. But I fundamentally believe you don't get to be successful and nothing changes if nothing changes. So I feel like I have to put myself in these like very uncomfortable positions, partially because, you know, I just have like a skill set that's really unique and I have like a weird opportunity that's in front of me and I get to do some really cool stuff. So I am an idiot if I don't take advantage of that. And then part of it, I just fundamentally believe like if I don't stand up and, you know, Uh, say like women in diverse populations need to get more funding dollars and things of that nature and push certain topics and objectives like who else is going to do it right like so I think I have an obligation too to be uncomfortable because it's not easy to walk into a room sometimes when you don't look like everyone else (laughs) and um, they kind of look at you like why are your clothes so bright and your earrings so big right they're very confused um, by me sometimes and but I know what I'm talking about and like, look, I, I just think I need to change the face of a lot of things and so I just have to be uncomfortable to do it. And sometimes that's really hard, but I don't let anyone know that it's really hard. So. <laughs> well, Lindsay, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the show today, sharing your story and talking about everything you have going on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yep, and Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. That was Lindsay Karras Stencil and if you guys wanna learn more about NCT or all the things she has going on, check out the links down in the show notes. Again, appreciate y'all tuning in every week. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. 
yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.